welcome to today's special Between Seasons bonus episode of Adam Was Mad. Today's episode is twice the length of a normal episode and absolutely jam-packed. Enjoy, and I'll be back in two weeks with season two. Hi, so glad to have you back today. With me, I have Robert, who is going to be speaking with us about his life's journey and what he's working on in his professional and personal life today. Robert, welcome. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me here. Of course. Glad to have you. Now, tell me a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do? Where do you come from? And how did you get here? Sure. I am living currently in Southeast Asia. I I live part-time in in Vietnam and Thailand, mainly Thailand right now. I am originally from the U.S. I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in L.A. and Long Beach and Compton. We moved around a lot as a kid in Southern California. Did you ever live in Ventura by any chance? I spent time in Ventura. My stepfather lives in Ventura. I've lived in Santa Barbara and Santa Maria. I met my husband out in Ventura. We lived there for about 10 years. I'm not out there anymore. I'm on the East Coast of the U.S. now, but we met and got married out there up at the Santa Barbara Courthouse. And my oldest of three kids was actually born out there in California. So I have a soft spot for Southern California myself. Yeah, Santa Barbara Courthouse is really beautiful. How did you get from Southern California to Southeast Asia, where you are now? It's been a long journey. Let me give you the quick version, which is that, like a lot of people, I'm a child who grew up with neglect and abuse. I had a single mother. Both my parents actually got married and divorced three times apiece. My father, my mother. Yeah. And um, my, but I mainly lived with my mom growing up and my mom and I, mom had a really rough life and had a lot of sexual abuse as a kid and just had a really hard time with men and having a son had a really hard time with me and projected a lot of stuff onto me. And so when I was 15, she threw me out of the house, even though I wasn't doing drugs, I wasn't drinking, I got straight A's in school, I... Nothing else happened other than I I got a girlfriend and stopped paying full-time attention to her and that really upset her. And so she out and so I was homeless and I was homeless for a while. I resisted living with my father and I eventually went to go with my dad, got heavily into drugs, really heavily into drugs, pretty much doing every drug you can do and for a while and yeah, about five years, I think I got deep into it. And then my father was a Vietnam vet who also went to, he came home and went to work in the federal prison system. And he worked in the federal prison system for 35 years. Wow. And uh, yeah, he was a pretty hardcore guy um, and an alcoholic. And uh, he, they, he and my stepmom threw me out of the house. So I was homeless a second time. The second time I was homeless... I felt cursed and my, my, my family rejected me every time you get divorced and now then they both threw me out and I really just, it felt pretty bad. And I had, I had another friend at that time who was studying a lot of esoteric stuff and had been doing a lot of Zen. And I read this book, Siddhartha by Herman Hess, which is a ripoff of the story of the Buddha. And I read that and I thought, wow, if I'm going to be cursed and I'm really, this is it for me, I'm going to, maybe I'm going to become a monk. 
And this friend of mine took me to a Zen retreat and uh, turned me on to some different types of esoteric teachings. And I decided to become a monk for a while. So I went into Zen Buddhism in America for a while. And uh, I also went back to school around that time because in Asia, if you're a monk, you get supported more by the community. But in America, it's a little different. So I went back to school to be a psych nurse. And uh, so I thought that would be a good way part-time, which it, it wasn't really. <laughs> working, I thought I would help people while I was a monk. I had to work a little bit part-time, but psychiatric hospitals really almost in any country are a little medieval. They're quite horrible mm. places to work where you just really maintain people. And uh, the staff is just only about one step above the clients who come in <laughs> really in mental health. A lot of us are starting off. It's, it was a big disillusionment. It was not a whole lot better than one flew of the cuckoo's nest, really. I mean, one or <laughs> one or two steps over that, but yeah. Challenge uh, to say the least. Yes, definitely. So I was that guy back then who would take people to the floor and give me, got the booty juice Right, Thorazine, <laughs> antipsychotic medication, or something to put them to sleep, or and put them. We would put people in a padded room with five point restraints, that kind of thing. And uh, probably yeah. not what you anticipated when you first began studying Zen Buddhism and decided to become a monk. I imagine you didn't see yourself then down the line wrestling psych patients to the floor and giving them medication and putting them in a padded room. I imagine that was not your idea of helping people. No, I actually started as a phlebotomist and then I transitioned <laughs> to this because I thought this would be- So you be actually a... liked the stabbing people with the needles. <laughs> no, I got talked into it by a friend of mine who said, oh, this is really going to be an easy way. You're going you're gonna to be able to do this part-time really easily. You'll make enough money to support your travel because I wanted to go to some other countries like India yeah. to study also. So I was trying to just find a sort of a quick, easy way into trying to help people and, and generate some money to, to travel abroad and go to India. That all played out, though being a Zen monk, it was not like a movie. I think I thought it was going to be like an episode of Kung Fu, but it was not like that at all. It's not <laughs> like Kung Fu Panda. It, in every community you live in, there's really difficult people and really easy people. It was a psychological gymnasium and you had to really work on yourself, but it was a really important experience for me because it really taught me a lot about consciousness. And I began to really understand the difference between consciousness and thinking and emotions. And I would challenge anybody to do a seven day meditation retreat where you're doing some classical form of meditation and come back from that and tell me that thinking and feelings are the same thing as consciousness because mm. you will definitely see that it isn't. That reminds so. me of it reminds me of that quote about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And mm. it had I'm going to butcher it because I don't have it in front of me but it had something to do with Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and it was something like knowledge is knowing Frankenstein is a, is the doctor and wisdom yes. is knowing that Frankenstein is the monster. And yes. So there was an Indian at the turn of the century named Quanah Parker who did peyote ceremonies. And he said, I think it was in court to the white people. He said, when the white man goes into his church, he talks about 
Jesus, but when the Indian goes into his teepee, he talks to Jesus. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And uh, this was his view of why it was important to do peyote ceremony. So yeah, the direct experience thing became really important to me. And my mom, actually, I don't know if I meant, I probably didn't say this. My mom was, my mom did a lot of careers. Primarily, she ended up being a secretary to a lot of abusive men, but mm-hmm. part-time what she did actually was she was a psychic and a radio really? psychic briefly. Yeah. Not a good psychic, not a really honest psychic, <laughs> a charlatan. <laughs> and so that made me very skeptical growing up, seeing my mom right. be a pretend psychic, right? Somebody who thought they were psychic, but really wasn't. And so I was very skeptical of stuff yeah, so going into Zen felt different. So I only historically trusted in ancient religions and things that had a lot of history behind them and a lot of study behind them and not just any kind of new agey nonsense that people believe in. So for me, there was a different Buddhism was a 2,500 year old form of psychology. And what she was into was, I don't know, um, a mishmash of a bunch of things that were very amorphous. Yeah. And in in Zen Buddhism, there's a training, at least for me, there was a training in understanding the difference between psychotic states and genuine spiritual experiences. Because in classical monastic training in Buddhism, most people may not realize that the big differences between the Eastern religions and Western religions are strong. Islam Judaism and Christianity really are religions that anthropomorphize God and they don't differentiate karma from God, right? Mm. They're the same, right? Whereas Eastern religions basically don't really anthropomorphize God in the same way. They believe that there's a pure kind of non, non-conceptual consciousness at the root of things and that it can incarnate into form. And, but the actual source of all things is, is non-conceptual. And, and karma and God are totally separate from each other. So God can be like the sun, always loving. And the horrible things that happen are things that we create and we do. We create separation from God, from each other, from life. And Buddhism generally, of course, is purely Gnostic, especially Zen. Zen is pretty hardcore. There is no God. There's what we call reality. There's just reality. And the Buddha taught that truth has gradations. Truth is relative. There's relative truth and absolute truth. Most of us all live in relative truth. And of course, from a lot of books now, we know that there are a lot of psychological theories in Buddhism that match up to physics and Western psychology. And there's a, there was a training, it was a definite training in Zen Buddhism about how to differentiate between psychotic states and real spiritual experiences, because you are taught and trained every single day, meditating six to eight hours a day, how to differentiate, how to see your subconscious mind explicitly, how to see the unconscious mind explicitly, and how to recognize between subconscious and unconscious projections and actual experiences that arrive that are not inventions of the mind. Okay. How to differentiate between schizophrenia and actual non-projective experiences that arise. In Japanese, there's a word called makyo, which means illusion. 
And there's an ancient expression among Zen Buddhists, uh, Zen masters that they'll say often to us, if you see the Buddha in the middle of the road, kill him. And it sounds strange. It means that if you're sitting in meditation and images of beautiful angels, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a real thing you're seeing. This could be something you're imagining in your mind, you're creating in your mind. You don't want to imagine the truth, right? You're not trying to imagine things that are true. You're trying to see beyond duality, beyond good and evil, right and wrong, your opinions, your beliefs, your past. You're trying to go beyond thoughts and feelings and subjective experiences and subjective concepts to the silence of the mind, the absolute silence of the mind. And in the silence of the mind, where there is no duality, you can experience what is really true, pure, unconditioned consciousness. And that allows you to access a type of knowing that's different than normal human knowing, which tends to be defined by intellectual evaluations of what's true. So this is really where you find the big difference between Eastern and Western psychological understanding of truth and reality. There's a lot of psychological teachings in Hinduism, in Buddhism, and in Taoism that are much more explicit than in Western religions. But especially Buddhism gets really into the nature of perception itself. And the fundamental difference between Western and, and liberation psychology, I'll call it, is the view of consciousness because it's very ethnocentric in America. Yeah. Uh, we really believe consciousness is the same thing as thoughts and feelings and neurotransmitters and the body. Whereas in the E, they've been studying states of consciousness and mapping them out and writing it down for 3,000 years. In the Western world, way... it's very materialistic. It's very yeah, physical. I mean, we started 150 years ago with a dude who smoked cigars. And I mean, it was it, there's a huge contrast. And we don't even want to give credit to the fact that the Buddha himself invented seven different psychological systems. Didn't invent them. He actually came up with them just by watching perception, which is very different than now. So the Buddha is the first person historically to teach the difference between consciousness and unconsciousness. He was the first person to give women equal rights to men, teach them to read and write. He was the first person to teach cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of things that we have in Western psychology now. People just I did don't not know that. Yeah, Westerners generally want to call Buddhism philosophy, which is a type of racist, ethnocentric position mm. in reality, because what he's teaching is not philosophy, it's psychology. It has a huge methodology within it and was the result of a lot of study on his part. He went to all the most enlightened people of his time and studied with all of them to come up with his understanding. And the Buddha was not a fanatic. He was very much, I'm teaching a methodology by which you can verify the truth for yourself. That reminds me of, it reminds me of, oh gosh, if the name is escaping me, but there's a gentleman who worked at the University of Virginia, he may have passed at this point, but he spent something like 40 years studying the concept of reincarnation, but Mm -hmm. not just from a theoretical or philosophical perspective. He actually went to communities where reincarnation was something that was an accepted. Dr. Stevenson's research. Yeah. He did it. Thank you. That's exactly who it was. It's fascinating because he studied children and he went to India to children who, you know, it's one thing when you go to India, like people, you're sure they believe in reincarnation over here in Thailand and India, but the reality of it in a caste system where 
the child believes in a previous life, they were ultra poor and untouchable and you're a wealthy family. No way, no way. You're not going to take your kid back to see their untouchable family. No, no, no. Or otherwise, an untouchable family who remembers their previous life of the wealthy family. No way. You're not going to be able to go into that neighborhood and, and see your old family and the memories. So it's strange. It was an interesting and really good place to study that because it's acceptable and it isn't at the same time. He would actually take those untouchable children to those neighborhoods and have them meet those families and interrupt that process a bit. And yeah, it was really interesting studies. The University of Virginia, he was working out of the University of Virginia, and they actually have a symposium where they get into a lot of the studies they've been doing for the last, I think, 30 years on near-death experiences and reincarnation and various esoteric aspects of consciousness. So it is yeah, really that- a subject. Yeah, that it's really, it really is a fascinating subject. And I wish it were more widely embraced as a, Mm. as less of a pseudoscience and something that we could actually study, because certainly other people in other parts of the world, as you said, have been studying this for thousands of years. And we in the Western world still see it as something that's just on the fringes. It's not mainstream. It's not mainstream science. It's certainly not a part of materialism. It's just seen as this sort of pseudoscience. And it's really interesting to think about the different cultural experiences of people who grow up with these ancient historical teachings that have been passed down over generations versus growing up in a Western environment where these are completely foreign concepts and really foo food and not acceptable for discussion, even in polite society, nevertheless, in academic sort of Mm -hmm. setting. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about how there is a real academic basis to these concepts and yes, to this not, course of study. Exactly. Not in the same Western sense. In fact, this takes me yeah. back to Mary because in 1999, I had a friend who was a, a priest because I went to seminary to be a priest as well. Oh my gosh. <laughs> long story. There was a, a series of events. My Zen master wasn't actually, we found out he was an alcoholic and they had to get him in treatment which was a big disillusionment for me. And I left, I found another teacher. I ended up going into a seminary. I thought I wanted to be a priest for a while, but there was another priest that I knew and he, he had gone to the jungle in Colombia, and he had found this community of Indians at that time who were working with ayahuasca. And he's, Mm -hmm. oh man, because we were interested in people who were teaching direct knowing in different forms, right? And he said, you need to come here and check this out, right? These community of Indians are really, really living a beautiful life where they're very connected to each other and their community and the kids. And it was really interesting. And uh, but one of the experiences I had there in the jungle was I was walking through the jungle with this indigenous woman named Kunti. And uh, with my wife also was there with me. And she was showing us, this is the Amazon jungle, right? So she's showing us different plants and saying, this is a medicine that does this. And this is a medicine that does this. This is good for fever, for infection. And I was really astounded. I was like, wow, how do you know all this? And she looked at me really intensely. And she said, I know what you're thinking. You're an American. You think we're all stupid Indians. And a thousand of us ate these plants and died to figure this out. And a thousand of us did this. So that's not how we worked it out. She says, we went into the silence of the mind through the help of the elemental ayahuasca, 
And in the silence, you just ask the plant and the elemental spirit tells you what it does. That's how we know. The consciousness and of the plant. The consciousness tells of the plant them. tells the consciousness of the person when they're in a non-conceptual precognitive state of pure consciousness, what it does. And uh, she was very intense with me about this saying in the West, you all think that the only way of thinking and knowing things is through thought processes. And that's just not how it is. And it's a very, she didn't say it this way, but I'm paraphrasing and saying it's a very ethnocentric view. We hold that everything is understandable only through mental evaluations. Yeah. Conscious thought. So, yes. So because nothing that the Buddha came to was through thinking, it was all through non-thinking. So this is a really foreign understanding for us. There's a Zen expression from the same Zen master Dogen Zenji, to know the self is to forget the self. It's really hard for us to understand this idea. So this was a big part of my early understanding. And a lot of my indigenous teachers were actually against me becoming a therapist. They said, don't do that. Western therapists, they said, are people who are really unconscious. They tell people how to help themselves, but they actually don't help themselves. They're mostly mm. living a very unhealthy lifestyle. And they, he, they were mostly right. I really encountered that working in the mental health field. In fact, I worked at a place called the Bridge to Recovery in Kentucky and, and in California for a while. They had a couple of branches and they'd been treating trauma for about 30, 40 years and we used to have a separate program there for just helping professionals, priests, doctors, therapists. And there are a lot of people that get into Western psychology because they think it's some kind of a modern shamanism. It's some kind of magical, they're going to learn all the secrets to making themselves healthy while helping others. And lo and behold, they find out that's actually not how it is. They're getting into an incredibly stressful graduate program that barely allows them to eat anything other than McDonald's and Taco Bell while they don't exercise, while they're struggling to work and struggling to pay attention to their kids. And, and yeah, it's a really imbalanced, unhealthy education system to go out and do therapy. And, and yeah, it's a really strange situation. It lowers the consciousness rather than raising yes, it. Yes, exactly. It Thanks. makes me think about the difference between Western drug addiction, like a meth addiction versus mm -hmm. somebody who takes peyote or ayahuasca. Yes. And it really, there is such a stark difference. And I think here in the Western world, we see somebody who is going down to the Amazonian rainforest and having an ayahuasca experience. And we, you know, oh, they're just a hippie druggie who wanted to go get high. And we don't understand that this is a shamanic experience and that it is something that can raise your consciousness. If you are somebody who's doing it with the right intention and the right education and the right mentor and the right community around you, as opposed to somebody on the street doing meth. And it's not the same. It's not the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. The shaman had a talk with us when we were first there about, because he knew I had an addictive background. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, don't think, you know, that you're going to come here. And in any way, this is about getting high. Mm -hmm. This is the opposite. He says, a lot of right. people come get because he says the medicine they call it the medicine he says the medicine is going to make you really sober more sober than you've ever been and i uh, said so that you all in the west really get addicted to substances and you don't understand some of these plants are a medicine and have a proper place in nature 
to help. Mm -hmm. And for them, all of this was a part of the intelligence of the great divine mother, that the divine mother was a real living intelligence in nature. And she was really wanting to help us through these plant medicines. That was really a, an amazing foreign concept to me. And in fact, doing the ayahuasca really healed deeply the trauma I had with my own mother, which was quite something. And, but it was extremely sobering, very sobering, because the, when you work with these shaman who are trained and raised, usually in the Amazonian jungle, they're raised like at seven, eight years old to be shaman. When you work with these people, they, they take you, help you to go through a journey where you really have to see and face a lot of things about yourself and take responsibility for your thoughts and your feelings and the actions of your life. And that's yeah. what the medicine really helps you to do. And some people have a hard time with that. And yeah, so that was a really good part of my journey doing that. I went there in the middle of a civil war. I didn't know that at the time. Oh. A friend of mine, it was during the Colombian Civil War. Yeah, a friend of mine said- Probably no, not the best Columbia, timing. <laughs> it's going to be fine. I looked at the US um, embassy websites. Like, don't go to Colombia. It's the most dangerous country in the world right now. Don't go down there. He's no, because he was from England. He says, don't worry about that. We're going to be in the deep jungle. We'll come get you at the airport. It'll be totally fine. But on the oh way- Oh my gosh. From the, and we got in the airport. My wife really flipped out. It was like, what have you gotten us into? We're looking yeah. at the news and there's tanks and war paramilitary troops and against the FARC. And I didn't realize I just naively came there trusting Adam. And so on the way out there, we were driving all these secret broken roads and we still got stopped several times by these paramilitary troops with their automatic weapons and get out of the car and they go through all of our stuff. And at that time, if you were on the road after dark, you would be executed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. By the paramilitary troops or the FARC, you could be executed. And it was a pretty serious situation getting out into the jungle. Well, at one point, actually, while I was there, the FARC showed up and dug a weapons cache and put out a, said, don't you fucking touch this. We'll come back and kill you. And that was oh. pretty crazy. I'd never seen anything like that before. They came in with all their, yeah, their guns and their bullets. And this was something. Yeah. Talk about trauma. <laughs> That's yeah, a little yeah, scary. Yeah. Uh, your yeah. poor wife, <laughs> which did yeah, not know was... what she was getting herself into. The community was amazing. And the shaman, they, the, these, the FARC in reality were campesinos. They were simple farmers trying to protect themselves from the CIA sponsored government at that time in Colombia, which was a puppet government run by cartels. So I learned a lot there and it was quite horrific what was happening that time. That was, that was, yeah, quite a, an interesting experience. Now, what, how did you get from the Amazonian rainforest in Colombia doing ayahuasca to Southeast Asia? I started traveling to a lot of different countries with some friends to investigate often people who were teaching about consciousness in some way to see if it was something worthwhile. Generally, you find people that are teaching a Gnostic point of view, a real form of direct knowing, you cross-culturally in different religions, you tend to find three main methods. You find people that are teaching some form of mindfulness, some form of meditation, some form of, out of way of leaving the body consciously, or psychedelic medicine. In mm -hmm. some, that's 
those are the main forms you tend to find. So I was, we went to Turkey and I went to Europe and I went to Canada and I went to South America, to Argentina and Colombia and Mexico, all through Mexico and many different places. And, and so how I got there was investigating stuff basically. And also being really interested in the psychological teachings within the religions of the Mayans and the Aztecs and, and these different cultures. And so I, I left, I was a part of that experience with Adam. And then I was back in the U.S. basically working in the mental health field. I left being a psych nurse. I got into working in the addictions field. I did that for a long time. I started working with, I worked for about, I worked for about six years as a psych nurse. Then I worked for about four years or five years, the adolescence. I don't really remember now, but in drug and alcohol. And then I switched over to, actually, I worked for Center for Discovery for a while. I was one of the founding people of that place. It's now the largest eating disorder clinic in the United States. So we wow. worked, it was dual diagnosis. We worked with eating disorders and then it became also at that time it was yeah addiction and dual diagnosis and they, they transitioned into eating disorders and then i f- left that to work just with addictions for a while and then i got burnt out working with addictions and i went into working with i started a gambling addiction program in vancouver washington at a place called northwest recovery and then i left to work at the bridge and we worked with that was mainly sex addiction sex love and relationship addiction and trauma generally. The Bridge was a quite an extraordinary program because it was actually started by Seventh-day Adventists. And these people did this program based on the Bible for about five years. And something strange happened where the founders of the program said, this is actually not working at all. All these kids are, and are getting, adults are actually getting worse. We need to pull the Bible out of this and maybe look a lot more to Western psychology. So they reformed the program more based on the 12 steps for their spirituality and Western psychology, a lot of gestalt and transactional analysis and trauma therapy, and they reformed it and started over again, leaving their Seventh-day Adventist views out of it, other than the program being more of a vegan kind of based program. So that was interesting. And, and I learned a lot of that program and just moving into different areas of working mental health. I worked in a, a prison teaching meditation and mindfulness for four years in federal prison on the side. Because I also ran a meditation center as well as working in mental health. So I'm on the side, I taught meditation mindfulness for free for the last 35 years. I've never charged doing that. And that's just the way I was brought up in consciousness. So your whole career, your whole adult life has been to try to help people raise their consciousness, help people deal with their demons, overcome Mm -hmm. their demons and overcome their trauma. Yeah. Yeah. The Dharma or the teaching of Gnosis, I've never charged for that. That's the way that I was taught. You don't charge for the truth. Though Americans that they seem to believe that you can really mix spirituality and money. I see a tremendous amount of people doing this whole, are you spiritual? Make six figures. I'm like, wow, okay, that's interesting. In America, (laughs) now you're kicking out all the televangelists and all the Christian evangelists, but oh, you're transitioning into a new way of making tons of money off of people with spirituality. (laughs) You think that 
spiritual materialism is still the same. I wonder if that's a part of your culture, built into your culture. You never hmm. really left that, actually. <laughs> Just tossed Christianity aside, but kept doing the same exact thing. That's a very interesting. I remember yeah. this back in the early 80s when they had a the first, what was it? The first national shaman meeting. And there were all these in California and there were all these supposed shamans there. And in, a Navajo women actually got up and read this, this, I forget what it was, like the rules of being a shaman amongst the Navajo. One of the thing is you don't charge people. And there was a big stir in the room coughing and because almost everybody in the room was making a ton of money off of people as a shaman. A.K. As, charlatan. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got you've to allow people according to their belief to, uh, if they want to pay you, they can. You don't press people, you help people. I never paid to be a monk. I never paid to learn meditation mindfulness. I never paid to learn dialectical behavioral therapy. Everything I learned was for free. And uh, that's how it was. And I see a lot of a lot of problems connected into power and money. Mm-hmm. You look Isn't at that cults. The truth? Yeah, when you look at cults and the problems in religion, the problems in spirituality, the problems with power and authority and money, sex, they're always often really deeply intertwined in spirituality. Mm-hmm. I found that leaving that out, the financial aspect, you separate yourself from a lot of those issues. If you really are, have a real true intention, you don't need to live off of people. If they want to give you something that's okay, but you need to keep a, a lid on it. So yeah, in our way of doing things, it's you can have something you do for a living, but you need to not rely on people in that same way. So that's been my way, my path. And uh, yeah, I stayed working in Western psychology because I actually, and I wasn't, I still fought that whole, don't be a therapist thing for my indigenous teachers. And my, some of my Buddhist teachers, and then eventually, because I'll say this to people out there might be listening to this, who are therapists. If you're a therapist and you're hearing this, a lot of therapists get into Eastern psychology and study Zen and study Buddhism and say that. But you know what you don't see? You don't see any lamas or Zen masters getting degrees in Western psychology. No, you don't. Not ever. You know what? I have never thought about it like that. Yeah, and that is exactly. the truth. It's very rare. Ananda Paramahansa Yogananda got a BA and he said later, the only reason he did it is because Westerners only respect people with degrees, but he actually didn't want to do it. He didn't feel it was necessary. So he felt that Westerners wouldn't respect people teaching about consciousness unless you came from their ethnocentric paradigm. And the paradigm is if you don't have a degree, you haven't gone to the university, whatever you know is knowledge doesn't mean anything. It's still like that. There's tons and tons of studies done on consciousness by Russians, by Chinese, by Southeast Asians, and Americans and North, generally North Americans and Europeans won't acknowledge it. If it's not translated into English, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's a very interesting thing. And there's a lot of resentment, actually, in Asia toward the push of Western psychology onto them. They're not that thrilled about it. And the push of the Western model as if everybody needs to have the same idea of self. And that does make sense because to your point earlier, if you are a part of a culture who's been studying and learning this for thousands Mm. of years, and then a new way of doing things pops up a couple hundred years ago and says, this is the right way to do it. You Mm. are going to be a little resentful of that being pushed onto you and over your centuries, thousands of years of 
cultural and societal knowledge and learning. And I'm not talking mm-hmm. like passed down from person to person, genuine mm-hmm. learning, true oh, yeah. academic study. And we as Westerners just dismiss all of that because it's not the Western way of doing things. It's not how we understand things. And who wouldn't be resentful of that? Yeah, I think if you talk to people from India, there's a lot of resentment toward Westerners not acknowledging everything is the Greeks and everything is the Europeans, but they absolutely will not acknowledge psychology and medicine coming from the East first in a big way. 150 years ago, we were still bleeding people to death, calling it medicine. But in China, they actually had sterilization technique and eye surgery, right? And, And real methodology to treat people through acupuncture and Taoist medicine. Did they really so, have eye surgery? I had yes, no idea. A, a level, I mean, I knew a level of, <laughs> yes, a level of working with the eyes and cataracts. Wow. They were way ahead of us and certainly in pain management and issues with the nervous system. So there's a lot of wisdom that came out of non-conceptual learning in the silence of the mind. This one's a really hard one for Westerns to grasp. And it's been a really interesting subject for me. I've studied my whole life. When I was a kid, I had a lot of out-of-body experiences. And I even remembered a pre- couple previous lives. And I assumed that everybody had this. I was six, seven, five years old and six years old and seven years old. I remember a few previous lives. And I thought my family and everybody had this. I didn't know that people didn't experience this because it was just normal. I didn't have any contrast. I didn't right. read any. I didn't know anything about this. And there was nothing that accessible to me at five and six years old that I could understand anyway, back in 1960 and 70 for me. And when I started talking to my family about it, they flipped out. You don't, don't believe in that. And I, they were just really upset about it. So it I was kind probably, of, it felt very threatening because it threatened, very threatening. their entire worldview. Yes, I put it away and talk about it, which is also part of some of the studies of kids of previous lives. So later, but later on, it was, I really had to know what was this stuff? Like, why was I having these experiences? At 10 years old, I started meditating on my own and I felt compelled to do this. I found a book in the trash that that was from Buddhism and I didn't even really understand this book fully, but it taught Anaprana following the breath and I was compelled to do it. And I remember sitting in my room every night, a certain night, my parents were like, what are you doing in there? And I'm like, I'm meditating in there laughing. You're meditating. And I'm like, yeah, I'm meditating. And they just, they thought this was ridiculous. And my, yeah, very strange to them. So uh, that feeling of being compelled to do it. That's so fascinating to me because I feel like a lot of people are drawn to this field of study or this area of study or this area of belief or the seeking of additional knowledge because of their own personal experiences and because they feel physically drawn to it, not because they took a class and found it fascinating. There's some personal aspect of it where people seem to have an experience or experiences that they just can't conceptualize within their worldview that they've been taught. And so they have to seek the truth to understand it. Yeah. And for me, one thing that's always been important is, and I want to say this is it wasn't important for me to 
try to understand what this was so that I could form a new system or paradigm or write a bunch of books and let everybody know that I had worked out the truth. It, what was important for me was actually to go into all the other truths, the other religions, into psychology and to understand from the perspective of lots of people over the centuries, I'm not the only one who's experienced stuff like this, right? There's lots of people and in different systems. And I really wanted to understand it through other cultures and religion, what's already there and understand what's the golden thread. Where do you find yeah. this religion? Where do you find this in indigenous teachings? This, I can't be the only one, right? So I wasn't looking to try to invent something new, but really try to figure out where is this thread already in teachings that exist now. That was important to me is to reconnect to what's already there in our origins as people, as humans. Absolutely. And one thing you talked about a moment ago, and I want to go back to it. You mentioned, you mentioned helping others overcome their own traumas and mm -hmm. how using your experiences has allowed you and enabled you along this path to do that. Can you tell me a little bit about how you help others today? Sure. I had a really great mentor, a guy who was a student of mine at the meditation center for about five years. And he convinced me, hey man, he said, you've shown me how to access such crazy interstates that I could have never imagined and how to go into samadhi states and meditation. And you really need to become a psychologist. You really become a therapist because you're, and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he was like, no, you're already He's, you're, you've read all Carl Jung's books and you're reading Freud's books and you're reading books I'm giving you like that. You know how ridiculous that is? Like, why are you reading all these books you have to read in school anyway? Just stop doing that. <laughs> you've done half just the go to school. <laughs> it's so stupid. Stop doing that. And he's like, just pay the money and you just get the sheet like, of paper. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'll do that. And so I, I did it. And, and, and so I just fully stepped into it. I think before I was one foot in with the psych nurse and the addiction certifications and other kinds of trainings I had done, but now I was doing it both feet in and, and really saw from doing loads of working in the 12 steps and addiction programs of cognitive behavioral therapy, excuse me, and 12 steps and motivational interviewing and lots of talk stuff that talk therapy didn't do anything at all. It didn't really help people to recover. And then I read this book by this guy, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He wrote this really great book called The Body Keeps the Score. And I'm sure a lot of your readers, excuse me, your podcast listeners have read this book. It's a very famous book now. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk was one of the first psychologists in the 60s and 70s to, he really pioneered the research into PTSD. And he worked with, at the VA with veterans and really saw that the VA did not want to support the diagnosis of PTSD, right? And Dr. Vanderkolk really saw very clearly that talk therapy and medications were not the answer for PTSD. They were really not helping people with PTSD. And in fact, at one point, I know he just studied, I think it was with Prozac, where Prozac versus EMDR, when it was showing that EMDR was way more effective than Prozac, the Prozac pulled the money out of the study immediately. Mm, and, why does that not surprise me? Yeah, we're not showing that this is more effective. I read his book and about somatic psychology and working through the body rather than through talking in the mind. And it's really impacted me because I saw people in different addictions programs I worked in because I, I ran my own outpatient and inpatient programs. I, I got involved with companies 
and uh, where I was running different programs. And so it was frustrating to see people cycling in and out of addictions over and over. And I, I used to do something before I take people to 12 step meetings. I go, raise your hand here. If you knew the drugs were bad for you before you, you did them, everybody <laughs> raised their hands. You know, prevention programs don't do anything. We all know. went through dare in elementary yeah, exactly. school. <laughs> and, and I'm like, raise your hand. If you've been through, you know, treatment more than once and always the majority of people would raise their hands. And this is, I started to feel very discouraged. Am I helping anybody? What are we doing? Mm. So I really started transitioning into studying that. And I knew immediately when I became a therapist, I'm not getting into cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's primarily what they teach you when you get a degree in a graduate or postgraduate program in almost all PhD and master's degree programs. It's cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. Those are the dominant paradigms. Because anybody can do CBT. You can be an alcoholic and teach people CBT. It doesn't take any mental health whatsoever to teach CBT. So it's pretty simple. And you learn the psychodynamic treatments and you learn CBT and the talk therapies and they're pretty easy. That was pretty easy, but you don't really learn a lot of more advanced therapies. So after you get out of school, if you want to learn to work with trauma effectively and learn somatic psychology, you got to pay for that training separately. And especially Mm -hmm. to work with things like dissociative identity disorder, which is one of the main things I I work with. I specialize in dissociation and dissociative disorders and depersonalization because I primarily work with- Tell me, pause there for a moment. Tell me what that is for people who don't know what that means. All people with PTSD or trauma. So first of all, trauma is a big word that gets thrown around a lot lately because in the early 2000s, it started to become the primary marketing tool in mental health symposiums and mental health marketing seminars to market treatment centers, okay? Mm. And as, as more and more research abounded in somatic psychology and more and more people went out talking to promote their treatment centers, they started saying, we treat trauma. And, and therapists are really interested in this, being trauma-informed therapists. But the problem is that we've started saying everything is trauma. Okay. Everything is trauma. If you have a bad day at work, it's traumatic. And people don't realize that there really is a difference between little T trauma and big T trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, actual trauma. So you actually don't know something is traumatic until a long time passes. If you walk out of your house and you get beaten up and robbed, some people can move through that. Some people can move through that because they live in Brazil and they live in a really awful area of Brazil. And they grew up with that and they're used to it. And they live in a rough area. I grew up with 30,000 gang members around me in Compton before at the before hip hop. You just got in fights and it was just, didn't feel traumatic. It just felt normal. Through that, just learned to move with it. That was your life. Right. Neighborhood was rough. So some people don't move through it. Some people walk out of the house and nothing's happened. But six months later, I'm terrified to walk out of the house and I don't know why. We have to remember that the studies, all the beginning studies happened with veterans. These are people that are trained to believe, push through it. You feel bad feelings, you have nightmares, you have panic attacks, that doesn't matter. Like Jesse Ventura says in Predator, you're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. So people who have PTSD, it was really easy to see PTSD because you're like, these are people that are not trying to have trauma. They're not trying to have trauma. Right. And they're showing these symptoms that they really don't want to have, and they don't know what's happening to them. 
And I would see this when I worked at the bridge, it was a totally private pay company. There was no insurance. And these would be a lot of wealthy people, billionaires, celebrities coming in and say, look, man, I've been doing therapy for 10 years. I'm doing all the right things I'm supposed to be doing. And I am having nightmares and panic attacks and flashbacks. It's getting worse. Why is that happening for me? And I'm like, I don't know. And that's when I sort of considering maybe the 12 steps and maybe I'm not, 12 steps is a great thing, but it wasn't working for people with PTSD. Real PTSD mm -hmm. has these symptoms that you don't resolve very easily. Um, there's post-traumatic stress and there's post-traumatic stress disorder. When you get post-traumatic stress disorder, you start doing this thing called dissociation. And dissociation is something that happens in you when your consciousness in some way starts resisting the experience of life and reality and you start dissociating, you start doing things to push your away from yourself away from emotional states and emotional intelligence altogether. You want to be less conscious of yourself. You want to be less sensitive to sensation, to feelings generally. Now, dissociation is on a spectrum. So everybody dissociates a little bit. If you go home and watch a whole series on Netflix, you want to totally catch up on the last zone box. out. <laughs> yeah. This week I'm going to watch the entire game of Thrones and you just forget reality. So that's a kind of dissociation, right? And we all dissociate a bit into things, gaming. Some people do video gaming. Some people drink a little bit, have a glass of wine or a couple glasses of wine or smoke a little weed, but it starts to move out. Some people smoke a lot of weed. Some people smoke weed on a daily basis. Some people have to smoke more than enough. And some people smoke cigarettes and some people do drugs and it starts to increase, right? Because they're trying to avoid emotional states and some right. watch four hours of TV a day and or play video games four hours a day. And it gets, I want to move away from emotional states and not be conscious of those things. And then you get into people with trauma start to move away from it even more in other ways. Some people use sex, some people use gambling, some people you shopping and there's what we call process addictions where people just use experiences, religion even, to move away from feeling states and sensation. And then you start getting into things like attachment trauma, borderline personality disorder, and where it starts to become an actual personality disorder, a sort of unconscious system I've developed to not feel and get away from things that are terrifying for me, mm. things that are really hard for me to be with in life. And the extreme end of trauma, you start having PTSD and dissociative disorders, ways in which we're really moving away from feelings. And then the very extreme end is what's called dissociative identity disorder that used to be called multiple personality disorder. It's a very stigmatized disorder, mainly by Hollywood and even therapists themselves. It's a very misunderstood diagnosis. And I work a lot with that. And that's the very extreme end of dissociation. And that's where you're using, you've as a child done these sort of negative meditations that you're not even aware mm -hmm. of. You're actually concentrating. You're doing these practices to concentrate, to wall off memories and consciousness from yourself, parts of yourself. You're dividing yourself into sections to wall off unbelievably painful memories and experiences. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating and heartbreaking. Yeah. There's a big difference between schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder for your listeners, because it's 
Some people think they're the same because of Silence of the Lambs. There's a scene in that movie where he refers to the prisoner next to him as multiple MIGs, but he says he's schizophrenic and uh, these are not the same thing. Schizophrenia is you have no boundaries whatsoever. You have visual and auditory and tactile hallucinations that you cannot control. You have no real boundaries, which makes you paranoid. So it's like you're seeing your dreams as physical reality. You're seeing your, it's like you can see the fourth dimension and hear the fourth dimension at the same time. You have no control over it. Wow, that's terrifying. Dissociative identity disorder is very different. This is a survival strategy. It's extreme boundaries, really extreme boundaries. So most people that I work with, like schizophrenics are non-functional. They're often homeless or mental hospitals, or they have to take medications to function. My sister mm-hmm. is schizophrenic, right? So dissociative identity disorder is different. That's extreme boundaries. These people can work and be high execs at Amazon, Microsoft, Olympic athletes, professors, psychologists. The person who trained me how to work with DID was a psychologist a woman who was a really talented, gifted psychologist, but also recovered from DID, from dissociative identity disorder. Wow. So it's almost like two ends of the spectrum. Two ends. And DID people are usually really high functioning in life. They're not low functioning. They're very low functioning in intimate relationships. Very low functioning. They hide that from themselves but they're very high functioning in normal life usually until something traumatic happens and it can reactivate it. That's when they usually come to me, but it's the white whale of mental health. Everybody wants to see it because they want to see switching like me, myself and Irene, like splits like (laughs) movies and Hollywood. And it just isn't like that. There are some cases where it's a very flurid, dynamic, dramatic looking thing. But in reality, switching does not look that dramatic. It's different. And DID generally looks different than that, a little different than that. But it's a very real diagnosis. It's been studied extensively cross-culturally. But it's a very divided field in, in Western mental health, believe it or not. Most psychiatrists don't believe it's real. About, I would say about 50% of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists don't even believe it's real. They don't, what? that's because they're not taught in any graduate program in any PhD program in the U S does not teach the assessment or treatment of DID. Wow. So of that's such a, a lot of arrogance gap. in the field and people on, on YouTube psychologists talking about DID when they've actually never seen a DID client, they don't even know how it really works, but they'll tell you that it's not real. Oh and my gosh. Part of what keeps stigmatizing it. And it's bizarre because even though there's a mountain of scientific research on this, it's in the DSM. People will say, I haven't seen it. I've been working for years in mental health and they don't just, they don't know how to recognize it. They don't know how to assess it or diagnose it. That's so, such a shame. And that's such a failure to the people you're trying to serve. It is. And what's more, Hollywood really makes it worse that if you are DAD and you tell anybody in your life, especially anybody at your work finds out, you will be fired immediately with no explanation given. Wow. That always happens. Any client I've ever had who told somebody in confidence at work that they were DAD pretty soon after loses their job every time. Oh my gosh. Because people suddenly look at you like you have a portable chainsaw in your purse and you're <laughs> one step away from murdering everybody here. Cause look at psycho. Wow. 
that's a movie yeah. about DID, right? Oh and my gosh, that's so sad. And that's yeah. such a lack of support. And we talk so much about the value of mental health care and the importance of mental health care. And it, that's this huge, we have this huge gap where we're not supporting people who really genuinely need it. And it sounds as opposed to schizophrenia, this is really something that can be treated and can be worked through because so much of it is trauma-based. Is that right? Are there things you can do? Absolutely. A hundred percent. There's a mythology that there is no treatment for DID when there absolutely is in somatic psychology. There's a lot of treatment for it. And it's really sad and unfortunate. I've had, I've, mostly because we advertise it on our website, seattletraumacounseling.com. We have a lot of DID people coming and they're usually really pissed off because they've spent their life savings or they've made all the big sacrifices, financially therapists who don't really tell them truthfully I don't actually have any training to work with you, but I want to do it because I'm so curious. I've seen so many movies and I really want to see an experiment with working with it, right? Which is the wrong intention. Which is the wrong thing. So they're usually pretty angry and upset. Most people that come to me are aware they have DID, though I do get a lot of people that want to get assessed because they have some sense that they have it. But they're pretty frightened to talk about it because... They've seen how people respond to it and they see how Hollywood perceives it. And, and I've had lots of clients be told at psych units and by psychiatrists, you don't have DID. They're usually misdiagnosed as by having bipolar or borderline personality disorder. And they're saying, no, you don't. They'll be told straight out, it's not a real thing. It doesn't exist when they even know themselves. And they're like, okay. And it's a trippy thing. Very interesting in our field that we do that. I'm a big advocate for DID because these are people that have literally their trauma is created through systematic torture, systematic se sexual abuse for years. It's some of the most horrific stuff. And I work a lot with political torture as well, especially in Southeast Asia. And then to be, to go through something like that, big T trauma, to mm. know that there's something wrong, to have an idea of what something wrong is, what that something wrong is. And then to seek out help and to be told it's not real, it's not what you think it is, how re-victimizing, how re-traumatizing that must be to those individuals who have finally gotten up the courage to seek help. I just, it's mind boggling to think about how damaging that must be to the psyche to seek out therapeutic help, to know that something is deeply wrong, to hope that there is a solution or a therapy out there that will help. And then to be told, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know yourself. We know you better than you know you. And none of this is real. Oh, that's, it's yeah. just horrendous. It is horrendous. And it's not like they're in a psych unit necessarily when they're being told this, sometimes they're just going to therapy. You know? I really encourage a lot of therapists all the time to get training, to work with DID. They're not frightening people. They're not awful people. They're really traumatized people and they really need help like anybody else. And you can learn to work with it. And they really do need somebody to help support them to recover. And, and me and some of my colleagues who banded together to work with trauma, we have a, our own system to help work with the ID and help people recover from that. But I dominantly work with religious trauma now, and a lot of folks with religious trauma, I'm not saying everybody, but there's a percentage. Unusually, I usually get the spiritual folks, the big money makers, the ministers of big churches, quite a few of them have come with 
DID. And it's, wow. uh, yeah, to see that that's, that uh, that's there. And I'm not trying to say that everybody with religious trauma, everybody who's religious has DID, not at all, just that it's, it's a, it can be a part of it. Sometimes there can be a lot of trauma in some areas of religion. Now, one of the things that you told me that you guys have developed in terms of a therapy or a therapeutic assistant is an app, right? You've created an app now? Yeah. So I may, we mainly use me and my partner, the other therapist I work with. I've, it's okay if I mention my websites because I'm absolutely want to promote do. the help for this with trauma. So we we work a lot with um, with first responders, with police, FBI, CIA, people who are really heavy stuff, and we work mainly with using somatic psychology rather than talk therapy. And, but I have a seattletraumacounseling.com website and religioustraumacounseling.com. And we rarely try to be working a way that produces some results for people. And so somatic psychology is a little bit more result oriented. You tend to see a drop in symptoms. So a lot of people want to get rid of their nightmares and they don't want to become addicted to psychiatric medications. And it isn't necessary to take psychiatric medications to get over PTSD and the nightmares. So one of the things that we've done is we have looked at the research of Dr. Stephen Porges and his teaching on the vagus nerve, what he calls polyvagal therapy. And that's a big part of how we work with people with trauma. It really informs us a lot on how we work with traumas. I'm going to show you a little diagram here. That maybe you can make available to people who listen to this. We have a model based on this woman, Babette Rothschild. She's a pretty amazing therapist, pioneered some ways of working with trauma. She wrote a book called The Body Remembers, which is a fantastic book about trauma and working with trauma. And, and she talks about that it's the most important thing when you start working with trauma is just to try to help a client recognize what is safety? What does that even mean? What is safeness? And how can we just feel that in the body and recognize that before we even go forward into working with these memories or these past events? So can we, first, we just need to sit together and know that we can feel safe together because a lot of veterans will come in and be like, I want you to help me with this because I'm making my life hell for my family or my partner, you know, but the minute we start to work on it, they're like, I don't want to get into feelings. I don't want to get into feelings at all. I don't want to talk about any of that hard stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what we got to do. So how can we just start to feel safe first to talk about that and to let that come up and to ride those feelings and to understand them rather than mentally evaluating all of them. So we use this theory called the polyvagal theory, which is the flavor of the day in Western psychology. So Stephen Porges did some, he was a research psychologist and he studied I think his original purpose was, if I'm remembering correctly, was to work with autism and develop a mm. treatment for autism in children. And he developed this music therapy. Many children will respond to it positively, but it was accidentally discovered by a company who developed a device called the Safe and Sound Protocol. And they experimented with using it also at first with trauma. So we developed our own version of this, which we feel works a lot better. Um, with clients. And we are using this also to treat people with trauma, but mainly more high levels of trauma and doing research with it, with people with trauma. 
and especially with dissociative identity disorder. So this is called the vagus nerve music therapy. Right now it's only available, unfortunately, on iPhone, but we're working on getting it available and also Android platform, but it's, yeah. So it's, I'm going to show you this diagram. So the vagus nerve music therapy, I was very skeptical about this at first because back in the late eighties, when I was an addict at that time, I went to school and was working, I was a musician and working as a studio engineer in Hollywood and going to school and studying sound engineering. And so as more and more healing music has evolved on YouTube, I was very skeptical of that stuff because we experimented a lot in sound engineering uh, with creating music that would affect people in different ways. So I was a part of the industrial music movement, which was an experimental underground movement in the late eighties. And uh, so when a client came in and told me I'm using this brand new kind of cutting edge music device that Dr. Porges developed, I was very skeptical of this. And then this client said, I have DID and and I assessed her for that. And uh, so I was really amazed at how, and she was amazed at how this, she was responding to this. And she really encouraged me to try this out with several clients. And I was really stunned at how it had this effect on clients of making them feel safe and making, some people couldn't even do EMDR. They couldn't do brain spotting or somatic experiencing or any kind of somatic therapy because they just felt so terrified. They could barely come into the office and sit in the room, but doing this suddenly made it possible for them to do a lot of other deeper therapies and resolve trauma very quickly. So this basically works in a way where according to Porges theory, you have this nerve in your inner ear called the strapedius nerve. And this nerve, probably biologically, he theorizes that this nerve really is there to respond to the vocal prosody of your mother and father's voice. Oh. So as you, and this nerve kind of has a direct line to the vagus nerve in the body. And this is where Porges' theory, and he accidentally discovered this, was that the vagus nerve actually is a translator. It is the nerve in the body that communicates really between the brain and the body and is what tells the brain you're safe or you're not safe. So what Porges discovered was that if he played compressed, a certain type of music that's been compressed to put through a computer. So he plays certain frequencies in the inner ear. It hits the strapedius nerve which tells the vagus nerve, hey, you know what? You're safe. So it's usually vocal music. And uh, yeah, so this is, I guess I would explain it as very similar to the birth control pill. The birth control pill tricks your body into believing that you're still menstruating. You're not pregnant, right? So this kind of tricks your vagus nerve and tells your vagus nerve, you know what? I know you think that we're still at war or we're still the bad person's going to come in at night and hurt you, but actually everything's okay. You're safe. Right. So you have to do this slowly. Everybody's a little different. And basically the polyvagal theory is saying that when the vagus nerve is doing pretty well and you're kind of garden variety person, we have a, a curiosity and an openness to life emotionally 
we are able to be present in our body. We're able to be connected with other people. We're able to have intimate experiences because intimacy involves trust and honesty over time. So we can trust people. We don't feel afraid all the time to be in connection to people or to trust people, to be connected to them. We can be present in our body. We can be present sexually for our partner. We can be present emotionally for our partner and other people. We can be in long-term relationships. Now we have the fight or flight response and people that have trauma or post-traumatic stress, like first responders, soldiers, police, FBI, hospital personnel, they're trained to deal with and live in crisis states or be around crisis states, but they'll often get vicarious trauma, right? And they get into this state. Now, some people associate this with the brain. There's a lot of theories that kind of overthrow the triune model of the brain. So I know some people hearing this might know the idea of the, the amygdala and the limbic system and the neocortex, but that's a it is controversial, so I'm going to leave that out. But basically, there's a part of the brain that when we experience trauma or are trained to be a soldier, we live in this kind of crisis state and we get conditioned to live in this sympathetic dominant crisis state. So people who live in the state, their vagus nerve is experiencing and telling, communicating between the brain and the body. There's fear all the time. There is anxiety all the time. There's frustration. You need to live in a way, a hypervigilant state that you're constantly worried that something wrong is going to happen. You got to be ready for the worst. You got to be ready for something bad's happening. You got to get more guns. You got to save up more money. You got to work more. You got to live in a hyper aroused state. You got to shore up for the worst things that are coming. You better be prepared and you better do what's ready and get yourself prepped and the end of the world is coming. And There's a work. book and I can't remember the author, but I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes. It's called Poppy and the Overactive Amygdala. And it there talks about that fight or flight stage that you're living yes. in because you're constantly in a state of fear and anxiety. And in that theory, the limbic system is really related to the fight or flight. So this brings us to the red zone in the diagram of the polyvagal theory, which is the freeze state. So when somebody has really extreme trauma, like they're raped or they're in war, they get into this freeze state, right? And in that freeze state, you all the blood in your body goes into the center of your body, you prepare to die. You start really dissociating. You go numb. You're being sexually, when you're being raped, you're not thinking about what's happening. And this is one thing that Dr. Vanderkolk says, talk therapy isn't going to work for someone that's been raped. When you're being raped, you're not like, why is this happening to me? I'm going to talk to this person later. When you're in prison, you're like, hey, why'd you do that? Seinfeld makes this joke. That was a terrible thing that happened between this last night. Does that have to happen? No, you're not thinking about anything. You're not. It's a horrible nightmare. It's something awful. You are trying to force this yourself out of the situation. And then you realize you can't and you feel helpless. You feel numb. You shut down. You go someplace else. You dissociate. It's awful. And you feel helpless. You feel trapped. So people who have, real, who have a lot of awful trauma experiences will often have cold extremities, actually. Interesting. They, there's this expression, she got cold feet at the wedding, right? So this is, comes from something real. The cold feet you get from being afraid at an experience. Cold extremities are really common with people that have DID. I would say 98% of everybody I work with DID have cold extremities 
the majority of the time. Wow. So you tend to see this relationship between trauma and cold extremities because of being in this freeze state. And in therapy, this is sometimes why people will pass out in therapy. They'll faint because they get into this dorsal vagal state. So in this one brain theory, of course, this is an amygdala dominant state, right? The survival brain. And yeah, somatic psychology has some really clear ways of working with this and helping people to try to feel safer. And the vagus nerve music therapy helps people to gradually come out of this. The music therapy is something you have to do only so many hours, once a month. It takes you usually about three or four months of using it. You use it kind of in a, like over a week, once a month, and it takes two or three months. You start to really feel a big difference coming back into the experience of safeness, but your body has to get used to it because most people that live in a dominantly hypervigilant state feel like this is the best way to live. I got to live in this state to protect myself all the time. Right. I, I want to feel better, but I don't want to come out of this hypervigilant, terrified state all the time because I've got to protect myself. Right. Because that that's, would cause more fear and more trauma if I don't right. protect myself. So that's the trick with working with trauma is how to, if you want to do the EMDR or you want to do the stuff to let go of the flashbacks and let go of the panic attacks and the nightmares and the side effects, we got to work with some of the emotions, but you don't feel safe enough to work with the emotions. So how do we just first get you safe enough to sit in the room and be with some of this stuff? That makes sense. Yeah, that is the trick. So we try to come out of the free state, go back into at least the yellow zone before we start to be able to work with some of the trauma stuff. Wow. Well, it's really amazing that you've dedicated your life to helping people in this way and that you're so committed to helping others overcome their trauma, their big T trauma, whether it's sexual or religious or whatever that may be for that individual, you're working with them to help overcome that. And that's such an amazing thing, such a positive that you're bringing to the world. And I really commend you for dedicating your life to this over, over the course of this really varied set of life experiences. Are, do you have any final words for people? Any words of advice? Any final words of wisdom? What would you like to leave people with today? I would like to leave people with the idea that, that there's hope for everyone, no matter what, okay? No matter what you've done, and I've worked with Catholic priests, and I've worked with people who are pretty destroyed in, in, in the military and feel hopeless, no matter what you've done, there's always hope and you need hope to change. You need hope to do things differently. And there's a difference between happiness and serenity. I want to leave with you with this, which is happiness is something that's dependent on things outside of me going my way. When I come home, my kid give me a hug, that I make a certain amount of money, that I have a certain kind of food that I feel a certain way every day because people like me. Happiness is depend on, dependent upon sensations and physical experiences outside of me. Serenity is a, an inner state that you generate that isn't dependent on things outside of you. Serenity is a very important inner state that's only acquired through the awakening of the consciousness. And that happens through practices and methods that generate, amplify consciousness over the thinking mind. 
That's very important. I'm going to leave you with this story. So there's a story that we hear in, as monks, and that story is that there's a, a meditation master, a Zen master, and his student, and they live in a hut down by a lake. And every day you get up in the morning when you're a Buddhist, you go out and you do a begging round, an alms round. And in, in Asia, anyway, you go out in the morning with your begging bowl and you ring a bell and you walk and you do walking meditation. And people traditionally will come out and give you a cup of rice. Some people give bananas or fruit or some people give money. People will give different things. But of course, there's also lots of people who are just like if a Jehovah Witness comes to your door, they're, they make fun of you. They say you're an idiot. They don't like it. And they may make fun of you. So after a couple of years of this, one day in the hut, the disciple looks at the teacher and he says, Master, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I want to meditate. I don't think I can be a monk anymore. And he says, why is that? He says, you and I are just really different. I don't know. When we go out every day, people make fun of you and they make fun of me. And it doesn't seem to bother you at all. You seem really like a different kind of person, but it really, it's hurting me. It's really bothering me a lot more than I realize. I don't think I can hang with this. This is really getting to me and really bothering me how people see me. There's a big difference between us. You're just a different person. I don't know why these things don't affect you. And he says, no, son, there's no difference between you and me. We're the same. The only difference between you and me is the container. If you keep meditating, you're going to see this clearly. The container is the only difference. He says, I don't know what that means. That doesn't make any sense to me. And he says, okay. He says, go over there, grab the bag of salt and the cup. And come down to the lake with me and I'll show you what I mean. So they don't have a lot, but they have this little bag of salt for seasoning things. And they have a cup and they walk down to this lake together. And the master says, so take a handful of salt and put it in your cup. Fill the cup with water. Stir the cup up. Take a drink and tell me how that tastes. So he does this. He fills the cup with salt, big handful of salt, puts water in it, stirs it up, takes a drink. He says, it tastes awful. That's bitter is exactly he says now take the same handful of salt grab a handful of salt throw it into the lake stir it up take a drink tell me how that tastes so he does this and he takes a drink and he says it tastes fresh you can't taste the salt at all he's exactly it's the same amount of salt only the container is much bigger so the salt is the pain of life each of us experiences pain but the experience of pain is really different when you amplify consciousness. When the container is much, much bigger, your experience of pain changes. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And that yes. is, whew, I have to sit with that for a minute because that's so poignant. It's so true, isn't it? And we all do experience that bitterness of life. But if we temper that bitterness with all of the good in the world, all of our good experiences. If we elevate our level of consciousness to understand that bitterness isn't something that is a reflection of us, that bitterness that we're receiving from others isn't a reflection of us, goes back to what you were saying, then it doesn't become external happiness that I can't have because somebody's doing something to me or saying something to me. It becomes internal what was the word you used? Not solitude. Remind me. Serenity. serenity. 
Yeah. It becomes internal serenity because you yourself are an ocean. You are a river. You're not a small cup. You're not dependent on that external. You have all of this other wonderful, wondrous experience, wonderful knowledge around you. And that bitterness just flows away. It's diluted. Yeah, it's hard for us to remember that we think of life as external events only and memories of those external events. But it's hard for us to realize that it's the inner states is how we remember life, not really by the external events, but by the inner state. You can save up to go to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, supposedly. But I've been there and had a pretty bad day. So, you know, because if you're with someone you don't like or you're having a big argument or you ran out of money or it's roasting hot or the lines are three hours long, Mm. the interstate may be pretty bad. And so, you know, some of the happiest moments for everybody, if you reflect, have been in moments where you're not really thinking, you're just in the flow of life. You're in the woods, you're taking a walk in the woods and you just look at the trees and you let go for a minute. You don't think about anything. You just feel nature and you just suddenly feel at ease and serene. You're not thinking about anything. You just can be present. And the serenity suddenly has an opportunity to emerge a little bit. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And it reminds me, so I have three kids and it reminds me of when each of them were, (laughs) they're all under six too. Yeah, I got one. So I kneel humbly before you. One's nothing. Three, three boys, all under six. And uh, it reminds me when they're infants, when they're little babies and you're just sitting there in the dark, just you and them, and they're sleeping on your chest and you're rocking back and forth and the world is quiet and the world is calm. And the only thing that's there is your breathing and their breathing and it's peaceful, it's serene, it's yeah. calm. It gives it's a symbiotic relationship between mother and child. You're truly, yeah. you're one. And it's that deep sense of peace and joy, not happiness, but just joy that you yeah. get in those moments. And what you're saying reminds me so much of that. And I think that's such a wonderful thing to end on. Robert, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you being here. I think this is going to be so insightful for everyone who's listening to this. We will be including links to your website, your services, your app in the show notes. So anyone who wants to get in touch with Robert or learn more, just have a look at those links. Robert, thank you again. Thank you too, Michelle. Thank you very much for this and for your attention. That's all for today, folks. Remember, we're heading into a two-week break before season two airs. But if you can't wait that long, join me on Facebook at Your Village Community 2. That's Your Village Community and the number two. You can also get there by following the link in the show notes. Speaking of, the show notes also has free downloadable resources for you to enjoy. Check them out and join me back here in two weeks for season two.